think I've got the microphone on now. Sounds like we've got a very live mic today. It is always a privilege to be able to share with you all at Big Creek Baptist, at Big Creek <laughs> Baptisterian Church. Yes, uh, there are enough Baptists uh, and former Baptists in this church uh, to qualify as partially Baptist. But honestly, one of the one of the joys way back in uh, 1986, Martha and I came uh, to Hannibal at that time from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, and we were uh, impressed by the the community of Hannibal. It's a lot smaller than Fort Worth, Texas, I can tell you, but a lot warmer too. And we've appreciated so much over the years the, the warm fellowship that the different denominations and different churches enjoy together. Uh, we appreciate especially Big Creek Baptist uh, Presbyterian. I did it again. All right. Uh, let me drink a little of your Presbyterian water and see if that helps. Okay, there we go. <clears throat> um, seriously, the, the, the fellowship that we've enjoyed together over the years uh, is made possible because we all worship the same Lord Jesus Christ uh, who died for our sins and rose from the dead and gave us a oneness in uh, his bride, the Christ. And we appreciate that and experience it here in Hannibal. And Big Creek Presbyterian has been so warmly welcoming of Martha and me over the years as we've had opportunities to share with you all uh, various points over the decades. One of the things that I have appreciated about the Presbyterian tradition, and you all are still in that, although you've had to move around a little bit to stay true to God, in my opinion, and I appreciate you doing that, uh, is that you all have a little bit higher church tradition than typical Southern Baptist churches do. And so I've had to try to connect with that a little bit in ways that I wouldn't have uh, if I'd stayed in... Uh, some of the larger churches of Southern Baptist life in the Deep South. And uh, the liturgy has impressed me over the years. The fact that someone and a, a group of someones for many, many years has worked hard to put together a series of lessons that can be used for the 52, typically 52 weeks in, uh, in a year where you can... Um, think through the different 52 truths that Christians need to be reminded of every year. And wisely, the liturgy focuses on the life of, and actions and work of Jesus Christ. So that you're going to have 52 different lessons throughout the year that in some way focus on what, who Jesus is and what he has done and what he means for us today. That, that's a very powerful concept, of, and, and it's one that churches outside of the liturgical tradition uh, sometimes miss because there's so many wonderful spots within the church, within the Bible, within the church tradition that you can focus on that you get, might get so excited about one area that you spend sermon after sermon talking about that one, and you miss so many other wonderful things. It, uh, so when I was contacted about the possibility of speaking with you all, uh, I said yes. And then I also turned to the, uh, the liturgy, which is published on various sites on the Internet. And 
check to see what would be up for today, use it as a possible topic. Well, it turns out that this is the 34th Sunday of Ordinary Times, which means that we're not yet to the Advent season where they celebrate the birth of Christ. We're certainly not around the time when we celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ, that would be Easter, uh, or his ascension. Those are three key aspects of the life of Christ as told in the Gospels, and, uh, and they're focused on appropriately. But we're just in ordinary times right now. In fact, we're in the very last of the Sundays before we get into the celebration of Jesus' birth with the Advent. And uh, as a fitting climax to this ordinary uh, Sunday, the uh, liturgist said, what, what's one topic that really isn't discussed uh, otherwise in Scripture? We've got his birth, we've got his re death and resurrection, we've got his ascension, but what else can we put in there? And the answer was, and the one that they've chosen for today, is uh, Christ the King. Jesus is, in fact, the, the King, the creator and king of the universe. He plays a profoundly important role in Scripture as not just that lowly little uh, servant of all who was so gentle that he wouldn't uh, extinguish a little smoldering wick. He was a very kind person. We don't just celebrate the, that cute little baby uh, in the hay, uh, and uh, all the wonderful things associated with little tiny babies, which is how Jesus did cho choose to come to, to earth. Now we celebrate something that contrasts sharply with that gentle Jesus, meek and mild, or that little baby uh, in the straw. Today we celebrate the fact that while Jesus is all of those and was when he was on earth, he was, he was also at the same time simultaneously king of all that is or ever was or ever will be. He is king of the universe, a truly glorious and exalted position. And uh, there are scriptures that, that teach us this and focus on this. And let's look at a couple of those today as part of our reminder of the fact that Jesus is, in fact, the king. Thankfully, we get to start in the Old Testament, and I do that anyway because I'm a retired Old Testament professor and uh, taught that for many years, even had at least one of you in this room in one of my classes, a couple of you, in fact, in my classes as auditors uh, in, in years past. But as we look in the pages of the Old Testament, we see, uh, if we look through the lens that the New Testament writers, the, the uh, apostles, and all the leaders of the early church used, when we use their pair of glasses to look back on the Old Testament, we see something that the rabbis of the first century so often missed. We see, in fact, uh, wonderful words of hope and preparation for the coming of Christ the Messiah, Christ the King. And so, I'm going to be using that same pair of glasses that the apostles of the New Testament used when I look at the Old Testament today as a Christian interpreter. And when I look in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, I see a, a 
passage of scripture that is considered to be one of the most important teaching passages about the life and ministry of Jesus, written approximately a thousand, uh, words that were spoken first to humanity about a thousand years, a full millennium before the coming of Jesus. And when I look in particular at 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 11, I see words that were spoken first to the mightiest king of the Old Testament, the most famous of the kings, King David. David was the first of a long line of kings that uh, ruled over Israel. But David lived in a society and in a world where uh, it was not always possible for one family line to remain in, as the head of a nation. We certainly in America do not practice that concept of having only one family rule over uh, a nation. Looked like for a while the Bushes might try to, to, to do a trifecta there with Jeb Bush years ago. We have had, in fact, the Adams family and others who have um, had more than one leader. But in ancient Israel and in all of Western Asia thousands of years ago, the person that got to rule by, uh, by definition was the person who was the meanest, the one who could intimidate and scare and kill more people than anybody else. And that person would rise to the top and would rule as a, a terrible despot who was not afraid to torture or kill anybody that got in his way. And that's how he made it to the top. And as long as he was able to maintain that position, he could rule. And if he somehow succeeded in scaring enough people into submission, killing enough people, then maybe his son after him could rule. And if that son was particularly good at intimidating people, his son could rule after him. And that's the way it worked. But if at any point somebody got a little bit wobbly or weak, there was always some general or uh, uh, administrator that was more than willing to take over to kill the king and to assume the throne for himself. Uh, something new happened with David. God did something a little different in that day. What God did was say, David, we're, we're going to dispense with this killing and intimidation sort of thing uh, for, uh, to make as the rule for who will be ruler after you. I'm going to cast a vote. We're going to have a voting system here, and there's going to be one vote, and I'm going to vote as to who will be the next king. And I vote for your family. From here on out, anyone who is a direct descendant of you is potentially going to be, a male descendant anyway, potentially going to be a king. I will select that individual, but it, uh, there's not going to have to be a fight. There's not going to have to be a murderous uh, coup. One of your relatives will always be on the throne of Israel. You know, that has a tremendous stabilizing effect when you stop to think about it uh, that can allow a nation, if you, if you settled who's, who's going to be at the top, then you don't have to have a war among the administrators. You don't have to have uh, a lot of bloodshed each time somebody gets a little sick at the, uh, or uh, distressed in some way for various reasons uh, as the head of government. You know and you settle the issue who's going to be king. That allows you to free up national resources to put them into building up the infrastructure and, uh, of the nation, to allow it to 
to flourish and in fact to achieve prominence that would not be possible if you were always fighting among yourselves. That was a gift of God to his people and a beautiful one. And 2 Samuel chapter 7 talks about this, but it does more than just settle the issue of who will be king after uh, the, the, old, the first king dies. It also, uh, as God set it up in 2 Samuel 7, it also provides a word of beautiful hope that was to guide and encourage the nation for the years to come. And 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11 and following focuses on this word of hope that was uh, in this gift from God to the family line of David. It says this, The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself, and the Hebrew term right there is actually Yahweh, it's a personal name of God, Yahweh himself will make a house for you. The term house is a word play, it can mean dynasty and does in this case, not just pieces of lumber and rock put together. The Lord himself will make a house for you, a dynasty for you. David, when your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will, become your, uh, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, when it says a descendant who will come from your body, that sounds very much like King Solomon. And in fact, uh, David's son Solomon did come to rule. It, that was uh, an issue from, from the king himself, one of his own sons. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish... Uh, now, Solomon's greatest achievement, as recorded in, in the Bible, was in fact the building of a house for God, a temple for God. The Solomonic Temple was the greatest building ever built in the history of ancient Israel. It required the best part of 200,000 workers to put it together. In a day when there were no uh, internal combustion engines and no harnessed electricity, uh, no electric motors, all the work had to be done by hand. And uh, only one king was able to marshal a large enough workforce and uh, to acquire, to build, to work enough contracts, build enough agreements with other nations to bring in resources to build the temple that uh, is prophesied right here. <clears throat> it was a beautiful building. In this prophecy, it says, uh, I, there will be a descendant after you. He will build a house for my name. But then, as is so typical of God, he also puts a little smoke, a little mystery into his words. You're, so that when God speaks authoritatively, he does speak relevantly to the generation in which he is, uh, to whom he is first speaking. He did speak to David, and he's talking about Solomon when it comes to the building of that house for God's name. But then God gets mysterious, and he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You know, Solomon lived a number of years. The Bible doesn't tell us how old he was when he died, but we suspect it wasn't any older than 80. Uh, he, it wouldn't have been any later than 900 B.C. or so that he died, some 900 years before the time of Christ. But um, I can tell you he's not alive today, and he's not still on his throne. And yet God says, I will establish his kingdom uh, and 
it will be a kingdom that lasts forever. That's mysterious, and it surely uh, was not fulfilled by Solomon, nor was it fulfilled by his son Rehoboam or any of the other 19 kings that came, uh, 18 kings that came after that in the Old Testament within the family line of David. Uh, God added a little mystery right here that made people scratch their heads, but also gave them a word of hope. David, one of your descendants is going to be a king who will reign forever. Makes it sound like a superhuman being. Um, I've noticed that my hair's gotten thinner over the years, and there's a whole lot more wrinkles in my face than there were back when I first came here in 1986. Um, in fact, when I first came here, we had a member of our church who said, oh, so you're a new student at Hannibal LaGrange. Actually, I, I'll take that as a compliment today. It was kind of an insult back then, but it's a compliment today. Uh, we, we do get old. Uh, but there's going to be a human being that would come who would be sitting on the throne of David forever. Now, that's a mystery right there. How in the world could that happen? And yet, that's uh, reflective of the, the words that God spoke to many different prophets throughout the Old Testament. These are words spoken to a prophet as well, though they're not recorded in a book named after a prophet, uh, as we normally think of it. Uh, and so we have this idea of a king who would sit on David's throne forever that shows up in the Old Testament. Uh, now, we turn to a book named after a well-known prophet, the book of Daniel. Uh, in the liturgical lesson for this week, uh, they encourage us to use a passage from the prophet Daniel, also from Daniel, uh, also from chapter 7, this uh, Daniel chapter 7, not 2 Samuel 7. And in this section right here, we have a couple of verses that also are somewhat mysterious. A lot of the words in the book of Daniel are pretty mysterious. And if you want to write a book about how the world will end in 2014, uh, 2018, or books were written in 2014, whatever, the... Uh, the book of Daniel is one you're going to use to, talk, to describe how the world will end. And if you really want to, to sell a lot of books, you might even try to attach a year as to when the events in the book of Daniel will occur. Uh, and if you do that, you might sell more books, but you're going to look like a fool when that year comes and goes. So just a little word of warning, next time you want to write a book on how the world will end and you want to use the book of Daniel. Be careful about adding year dates for when these things will happen. But I will say that uh, in, in the Daniel chapter 7, there is a fascinating passage in here. Daniel, in a vision, sees this. And I'll just read a few of the words here. I'm going to actually start with verse 9 and read, read that. Uh, part of it, anyway. Daniel, in this vision, said, uh, writes down what, uh, sees something, and now he writes it down. He says, as I kept watching, thrones were set in place. This is apparently a heavenly, supernatural setting. Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. By the way, it's not uncommon for a, an ancient despot, an ancient king, 
in Western Asia to have a throne for himself and then to have a chair on the right side and a chair on the left for persons of honor who for certain ceremonies would be allowed to sit there close to the king on his right and on his left. So thrones were set in place. But the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. So this is not a, a normal kind of being that would be able to sit on a, on a chair that's on fire. Uh, but uh, the, the clear implication is that this is God himself, the Ancient of Days, that is seated right here. And it's a very impressive sight and, uh, and one that no human being could ever have. But now... In verse 13, as we skip just a couple verses down the way, Daniel says, I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and tongue should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So we have God the, uh, God the Father, the, the Ancient of Days, seated on this supernatural throne that is just blazing, just blasting with energy, coming from that uh, seat of power in the universe, uh, and it looked to Daniel like it was on fire. And then we have one who approaches him, who is given the name, given the title, Son of Man. Now, it's very interesting that the term Son of Man is used a couple of different ways in the Old Testament. It's used, uh, first of all, by Ezekiel to refer to one who, um, well, to the prophet. In fact, Ezekiel on several occasions is called Son of Man. When Ezekiel has that name given to him, or is, is called by that term, uh, it refers to mere mortal. Hey, you weakling, you son of a mere human being, you one who, uh, who is subject to death and illness and frailty, You're, you son of man, you, you son of Adam, actually is another way to translate it if you want. Uh, takes on a little bit different meaning with C.S. Lewis, son of Adam. But um, in uh, Son of Man is now used in a very different way in this passage in Daniel. The term refers now to not one who is a mere mortal, a son of Adam. Uh, here it refers to, though it's the same, same translation, it refers to one who <coughs> will have an everlasting throne, whose dominion will, be, will extend over all humanity. Uh, and uh, who will be uh, so great that he can appear before God in heaven. And that's a mystery. Who is this being who would be able to stand before the fiery throne of God, uh, the Ancient of Days up in heaven, and yet somehow be on earth so as to exert authority over all humanity and have uh, apparently on earth a a dominion that will last for all time. Who is this son of man? It 
It's a mystery. The smoke is in the room again, and, uh, and we don't see clearly who this one is. We saw in 2 Samuel 7, uh, one who would be a, from the throne, uh, would be in the throne line of David. He would sit on David's throne, uh, who would build a house for God and uh, whose dominion would be forever. And now we see that one called the Ancient of Days and one who would, uh, in a supernatural way, be able to be worthy to stand before the Father, the Ancient of Days, and yet certainly qualified to rule over all of humanity. The Jews of the first century didn't know who that would be, but they knew that something special had been promised by God. There would someday arise a great one who would exercise the authority of Israel's mightiest king who would be like David, in fact, a direct descendant of David, but who would also be so magnificent in his abilities and his, con his conquests and achievements that he would rule over all of humanity. And what's more, his dominion would last forever. They, they gave a special name to this individual. They called him the Mashiach, the Messiah. That word Messiah uh, means anointed one, one specially set apart by God to do the work of God. Uh, that term was translated into the Greek language uh, and shows up in the New Testament as the term Christos, Christ, as the Christ. Uh, there, was, there would come someday one who would be the Messiah, one who would be the Christ, who would in fact fulfill these mysterious promises of the Old Testament of one who would serve as Israel's king. But who would he be and when would he come? Well, no one knew. They, but they knew who had said those words and they knew that the one who made those promises was one who kept promises. Someday God would, in fact, bring a king to his people Israel who would be in the family line of David and who would possess abilities and powers that could only be called supernatural and who would, in fact, assume a place of authority over all nations and peoples. Not surprisingly, they understood that this individual would come uh, in his royal power and abilities as one who would be a military conqueror. He would rule with an iron fist, and there's even a phrase relate similar to that in the Old Testament, uh, and uh, crush the nations. Translated into the first century AD when Jesus actually lived on the earth, that meant that he would be a Roman killer. He would finally... Uh, remove the heavy boot of the uh, centurions, the Roman centurions from the land of Israel, and he would set those people free from all the dominion of the Caesars uh, of Italy. Uh, and so they were looking for a military conqueror. They were looking for one who would come with all the trappings of a typical king, uh, such as they had known from uh, Herod and others, in their day. What they did not expect is what they got. And yet, uh, what they got was something far greater and better than that. 
as Matthew tells the story in the New Testament, and I will stick, I'll, I'll dip one little toe into the New Testament because I have to as an Old Testament teacher. Uh, if I'm going to be a proper Christian uh, in, in, expositor. But I'm only going to get into the second chapter of Matthew, so I'm going to leave all the rest of the stuff for other New Testament teach, uh, teachers. But in, in chapter 2, we have a, a fascinating story that relates to the Christmas season. And it says in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Matthew, the great gospel writer uh, who did provide us with this opening book of the New Testament, uh, understood the importance of linking that little baby Jesus, recently born in Bethlehem, uh, with these powerful prophecies of the Old Testament. Uh, prophecies of one who would be the king uh, in the family line of David, the ultimate king, who would not, like Solomon, uh, die after a, a glorious reign, but a temporary one. Uh, one who also would be ultimately the the capital S, capital M, son of man, the ultimate son of man, who was in fact one who came from the very presence of God the Father in heaven down to earth to rule over the people. But, to but, but not to rule like the rabbis had expected, to do so in a, in a unique and truly spiritual and far more satisfying way. The wise men from the east were not Jews. They had come from a very different religious tradition. The Bible doesn't give us any explanation as to exactly who these magoi are, the Greek term magoi right there, these magi. Uh, but we do know this, they were people who heard the voice of God and who saw an insight uh, that had been missed by the Jewish rabbis of the day and certainly by King Herod and his advisors. They saw that God in, in that generation was going to be fulfilling scriptures that they may not have even known about, but, uh, but they had heard a voice of God that said a king in their day had been born, a king of the Jews, a king that would ultimately fulfill the royal prophecies of the Old Testament that uh, were mentioned in those two passages, but others actually in the Old Testament if we had endless amounts of time to look at them. And um, this king, when he came to earth, notice, uh, created waves, created disturbances. Verse 3 of chapter 2, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When God does something great on earth, uh, people's reactions will be many and varied. There will be those uh, who follow the path of King Herod. God, you chose my generation to do all this stuff, to bring that king? I'm the king, was kind of Herod's perspective. Uh, why don't you, you can send a king someday, but not during my reign. He might get in the way of my, my plans. 
God, you might just be disturbing my designs on life. Get out of here, God. I don't want you here. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard news that God had sent his king, his king, to Egypt. Uh, but, and we'll conclude with this, the, the better approach is to, is to take the position of Mary and to say, God, when, when she learned that God was going to send the, the Messiah to Israel through her, she said, as you wish, basically, to summarize the, uh, the, tran the translations, I am your servant, uh, do as you please. When, uh, will we take the position, by the way, God has sent his, his son, and Jesus did fulfill these prophecies. He, he chose his own way to do it. It surprised people that Jesus did not come with a sword in his hand and uh, riding on a chariot. Instead, he chose to ride on a donkey uh, into Jerusalem at the time of his, uh, at the climax of his career. Uh, normally, in the Old Testament, when a king would ride into town, when a king would ride into town, he would come on a mule, uh, much like, you know, mules are bigger than donkeys and stronger than donkeys. And uh, they, that was the kind of riding animal that was fit for a king in ancient Asia within that culture. Horses couldn't, would stumble too much on the rocky, unpaved roads. They just couldn't handle things. Uh, and oxen were too slow and probably wouldn't want to ride one around anyway. But a mule was, the, was, was fit for a king. And yet this king, uh, at the climax of his career, when he rode into the royal city of Jerusalem, came in on a donkey. Uh, it would be not like coming into town uh, if you're president in the, in the presidential limousine with the bulletproof glass and the beautiful black uh, paint job on it and all that sort of thing but come into town in a, in a little old 63 VW or something like that, something far less impressive. Uh, Jesus, Jesus was the king, but he didn't come like the people expected him in his day. When he came, he disturbed many. Herod and all of Jerusalem was disturbed when God interrupted their plans. But the call for us today is to accept the work of God as he expressed it perfectly, through our King, through our Christ, through Jesus, born of Mary, but also the one who is both Son of Man and Son of God today. And as we enter the Advent season and we do celebrate the birth of, of the, the birth of the King, who didn't look much like a king when he was first born, uh, may we remember that he needs to be the King not just of the Bible, and, and the prophecies of the Old Testament, but king of our hearts and lives today. And with that, uh, we'll conclude our lesson.